Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's September 16th, 1994, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. As a young child, I was convinced that the Northern Irish were some strange breed of people whose mouths didn't quite match their voices. And that was because whenever certain prominent Northern Irish politicians appeared on the news, they were dubbed over by actors, a weird quirk of a broadcasting ban that was lifted on this day by Prime Minister John Major. And it all began on the 19th of October in 1988, when the British Home Secretary at the time, Douglas Hurd, issued a statement to the Independent Broadcasting Authority banning the broadcast of statements from representatives or supporters of 11 Northern Irish organisations, both political and military. And though the ban affected both unionist and Republican groups, it was pretty clear that its intended target was Sinn Féin, the political party that's so often associated with the IRA. And there had, in 1988, been a lot of IRA attacks. So there was pressure on the government to do something. Um, There was one in Gibraltar. And after that, before this broadcasting ban, Channel 4, the British TV channel, ironically established by the Conservative government, invited Gerry Adams on to have a discussion. And there was an outcry about that. The show never went ahead because of the outcry. Then that autumn, there was a planned attack on a senior civil servant in Northern Ireland. And on that occasion, Gerry Adams was interviewed by the BBC in Northern Ireland. And he basically said in that interview, I'm not going to do the accent, this should serve as a warning to anyone working for the British. Mm. So you can understand why the British government watching in London felt... This was propaganda for the IRA on their own channels. And the reason that Sinn Féin was particularly impacted was because it was a political party. Most of the other groups were paramilitary organisations, you know, the UDA, the IRA, the provisional IRA. But Sinn Féin being included led to this bizarre scenario where people who were elected MPs, like Gerry Adams, he was he abstained, he, didn't, he wasn't a sitting MP, but he was elected as an MP for Belfast West, were not allowed to feature on TV programmes. There was an exception made in the ban that Heard issued, which was that if it was coverage to do with elections, then you could have members of those ban groups featured on the news, because otherwise, you know, of course, it's, it couldn't be said to be a fair election. But even so, most British channels just chose to steer clear entirely And Heard's ban was so vaguely worded that initially the BBC were in an uproar trying to work out exactly what was being banned. And it was the following year, 1989, that they hit upon this voiceover workaround. I mean, it is the most wild kind of workaround you could possibly settle on (laughs) if the intention of this ban was to starve the terrorists of the oxygen of publicity, as Margaret Thatcher said when she praised the restrictions. But You know, the fact that the ban also came to cover drama and documentaries and talk programs and the solution that networks came to was, well, let's just dub the people in question and that means that we get out of the problem is... You know, it's it's to the letter of the law, but obviously not the intention of it. I mean, like so much of kind of 
Thatcher's driving policy, you can understand the spirit of it absolutely, like it's coming from someone with conviction who firmly believes a thing, but she has left the interpretation to everybody else, including her own Home Secretary, which is why you get this problem. I mean, she'd been thinking as early as 1985, there's a speech she gave to the American Bar Association, in which she proposed the idea that society could, quote, ask the media to agree among themselves a voluntary code of conduct under which they would not show anything which could assist the terrorists' morale or their cause. Now, that Mm. is something that most people working in British media, independent or state-funded, would probably have agreed with then. The problem was she sat tight for three years, waited for something to happen. (laughs) It wasn't happening in her view. And so she just heavy-handed the law, sort of intervened. And there were obvious problems with this legislation right from the beginning. If you look back on the debate on Hansard in the House of Commons that was had uh, in 1988, Roy Hattersley, uh, Douglas Heard's opposite number for Labour at the time, said... Does not an examination of the detailed results of the proposal demonstrate that it is trivial, worthless and almost certainly counterproductive in the real fight against terrorism? Today's statement is intended to create the illusion rather than reality of activity. It will make the government look simultaneously repressive and ridiculous. And ridiculous (laughs) is the thing, isn't it? Like as if repressive wasn't bad enough. It made the BBC, this great cultural organ of our country, look a bit ridiculous that they were dubbing the voice of Gerry Adams on the news. That isn't news then, is it? It is a state-mandated presentation of a real news story. Yeah, well, the BBC had actually been applying self-censorship over the trouble since the 1970s. There was a requirement for anything touching on Ireland, Northern Ireland, the troubles needed sign-off either from the Northern Ireland controller or the director general. So you can see how there was already a bit of a chilling effect because why would you go to the trouble of commissioning something that's going to need so such high sign-off? The Falklands War only intensified the pressure. There was this big movement during the conflict where the government and the right-wing press were applying this pressure to TV channels, programmes, even to individual journalists accusing them of being unpatriotic if they weren't reporting what the government wanted them to report. So there was already this atmosphere of, you know, the British press and the media needs to be in line with the British government. And then, of course, the IRA attacks only made this more intense. In March 1988, Thatcher said... I believe that everyone, the media included, has a bounden duty to do everything that he can to see that those who perpetrated the terrible crimes that we saw on television and that disgusted the whole world are brought to justice. So it was really, you know, putting it out there, you're either with the terrorists or you're with us. But through it all, they just end up looking ridiculous. And, you know, thinking about that kind of surreal, farcical quality that was settled on, there was one case where a journalist called Peter Taylor was allowed to make a documentary about the inmates in the Mays prison in which the prisoners were were allowed to discuss their personal lives and everything that they were doing in the prison. But one section was deemed subject to the ban and had to be revoiced. And that was when the IRA prisoner's food spokesperson complained about the size of the prison's sausage rolls. <laughs> you know, just like, why, why is that the bit that needs to be su- subject to a revoice? <laughs> it's just nuts. And there had to be a, a huge amount of clarification from the government for example, about whether or not a reporter standing outside where a bombing had happened could report what Sinn Féin had said Mm. about the bombing. They weren't allowed to show the clip of Sinn Féin saying it themselves, 
But there was a clarification that said, yes, you are allowed to report exactly what was said because that's what a newspaper does. That's fine. Mm. What's harming the country is seeing people say in their own words the thing. And it's like, what? I mean, when you read (laughs) something in a newspaper or hear a reporter say what they said, you are in any case imagining the person saying it. I mean, it's it's such a weird and small distinction anyway. Yeah, it's really underestimating the common person. And it also attracted a lot of criticism of the BBC from the international community at all ends of the spectrum. So you had the... USSR and its allies like Cuba, who are openly mocking the BBC, you know, this is state censorship, this is the thing that you accuse us of. And also complaints from other governments that the BBC should also refuse airtime to their chosen domestic troublemakers. So if you're not going to let the IRA speak on camera, then you can't interview this terrorist group in our country, which was obviously going to bleed into international reporting. It does seem like the vast majority of BBC executives and journalists were good soldiers. They did go along with it. The one instance of a serious backlash was after the BBC refused to air a documentary that they had made because it contained interviews with Sinn Féin's Martin McGuinness and the DUP's Gregory Campbell. That prompted a one-day strike by the National Union of Journalists. It does seem particularly perverse to greenlight a documentary and then ban it after <laughs> you've done it. Like, like, oh, well, we didn't realise you were actually going to speak to the people. Yeah, about. yeah, outrageous. <laughs> one person who at the time expressed some misgivings as the BBC's foreign affairs editor, John Simpson, who was working in Baghdad during the Gulf War. And he said, I don't like to see this country appearing on the same side of the dividing line as Saddam Hussein on anything at all. So you can imagine that actually, even if people were kind of going along with it in the BBC halls of power, there probably was actually quite a lot of discontent. And probably within the Conservative Party as well, which did lead to a review. In 1993, John Major's Prime Minister at this point There's an opportunity to have a clean slate. Let's look at this. And the review concluded, no, this is working. We're going to keep dubbed voices on Sinn Féin leaders on the BBC. We've listened to the arguments and we think we're best off where we are. And that was the position until you got to this date, which is a fortnight after the first IRA ceasefire, which when you think about it is pretty much the first possible time really in that period that the government could convincingly argue that somehow this policy had been successful. Because look, it's led to a positive outcome. We've got a ceasefire. By the way, I wasn't around when all of this was taking place. So I've had to kind of imagine what the dubbed voices sounded like. Did they attempt to cast people who what? sounded like the people in question? Yes, they did. Oh, Arian, look it up on YouTube. It's fantastic. Do you know there were two actors who supplied the voice of Jerry Adams? Okay. One of them was uh, Paul Lufferin, who went on to play Butch Dingle in Emmerdale. I had no idea that he was originally Northern Irish. Um, the other one was Stephen Ray, the Oscar-nominated star of The Crying Game. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was his big break. <laughs> his lip-syncing was so good, having come from a background of having to lip-sync his own work in movies, right. and his accent was so naturally from Belfast, that his Jerry Adams was actually almost undecipherable from the original. It was actually an improvement in some senses. Yeah, Yeah, to be effective, they really should have had someone doing a sort of mocking accent going, we've always said that dialogue and engagement are important. (laughs) Next time. And they included, alongside the railway queen, textile queens, cotton queens, wool queens. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.